This class is part of the Lessons in Tanya project. More classes available at LessonsInTanya.com Major funding for this Tanya class is provided by the Mettel Corporation. Additional funding is provided by Tanya students like you. Lessons in Tanya The Tanya of Rabbi Schneir Zalman of Liadi Taught by Rabbi Ben-Zion Krasniansky Tanya's text elucidated by Rabbi Yosef Weinberg So we are on page 189. We started the, uh, last week the letter number 28. We quoted the Talmud, tracted Mayed Cotton, that said, why in the Torah do we find the passing of Miriam juxtaposed right next to the parish of the Red Heifer? To teach us that just like the Red Heifer atones, so too the passing of a tzaddik atones for the sin. And the question he asked, why did the Torah to teach us that the passing of a tzaddik atones, the Torah, Torah should have juxtaposed it to a real sacrifice? Why to the red heifer? And red heifer isn't really a sacrifice. It's, it's, the Torah calls it a sacrifice, but it's really a purification, not a, not a sacrifice. So it would make more sense to juxtapose it to a sacrifice. So first, he's going to, to answer this question, first he's going to explain what is a sacrifice. What is the mystical meaning of a sacrifice? Now, the mystical principle of the sacrifices offered on the altar is known from the sacred Zohar and from Rabbi Isaac Luria, a blessed memory. The simple meaning of a sacrifice, Nachmanides, I mean, not, not so simple, but uh, Nachmanides says that whatever we do to the animal really should be done to us. So when you're standing there over the animal, and we sin, and we're standing over the animal, and the animal, we're taking the life of the animal, and we're sprinkling the blood, and the, the uh, sinner stands and watches and witnesses, and he feels that really whatever's been doing, done to the animal should really be done to himself. So it really hits home. You know, we don't realize the effect of sin. To us, sin is abstract. It's a, it doesn't really impact us. But when you see the consequences of the sin, and this is the damage that was done, and to the extent that we have to take the life of the animal and we have to, you know, do this whole thing with the animal, it really hits home that the sin is something very real, and and it will break your heart. But so that's on the on the on the. But the Arizal, based on the Kabbalah explains. They are an instance of the elevation of Mayim Nukven, literally feminine waters, i.e. a mortally initiated spiritual arousal deriving from the animal soul, which receives its life force from Klipanoga. This elevation ascending to their root and source, i.e. the forms of the four animals, the celestial chariot, which bear the throne, as described in Ezekiel chapter 1, the face of the ox and the face of the eagle, and so on. Whatever we do in this world really has an effect, effect above. So the animal, the soul of the animal, the soul of the animal is rooted. The energy, the soul of the animal comes from the angels, which are called the face 
in the chariot, in the vision of the chariot, Ezekiel, he saw the face of the angel like the face of an ox, the face of an eagle, and then uh, the face of, face of man, and the face of a lion. But we don't offer, a lion is not a kosher animal in this world, we don't offer a lion as a sacrifice, and of course we don't offer uh, human sacrifices. But the animal and the birds, their souls are rooted in, in their source. So when we offer a sacrifice in this world, in the temple, we're elevating the soul of the animal, connecting it to its original source. From this physical animal, we're connecting it to its godly source, to its divine source, to its spiritual, spiritual source. So it's an elevation. The temple is not a slaughterhouse. The altar is not a... Uh, it's a uh, place where you elevate everything. It's a place of elevation. We're elevating the animal back to its root because the animal in this world is a klipa, a shell. It's, the godly energy is covered up. You look at the animal, you don't sense anything godly. The animal appears to be self-sufficient. Right? The animal doesn't need a, a, a source or root. It's, it's self-sufficient. So that's already a cover-up because the reality is that nothing could exist without a source. The source of this animal the angels, they sense their source. They're like a fish in water. A fish knows that the moment it loses its source, it leaves its source, it's dead. It can't survive for a second without its source. It has to, it's swallowed up in its source. It has to live in its source. It's connected with its source. It's like we can't survive a moment without breathing. The, the fish is swallowed up in its source in the water. So the angels, even though they are created beings, but they sense their source. Their sense, they're, they're swallowed up within their source. They constantly sense Hashem and the godly energy that's creating them. And therefore they're constantly praising and singing Hashem's praise. They're constantly connected to Hashem. They're constantly elevating. They're singing and elevating and trying to connect to their source. They want to be closer to their source. They want to so that's holy, that's holiness. Anything that's nullified, that recognizes its source and recognizes Hashem, that's holiness, that's truth, that's reality. But then that energy comes down in this chain reaction and, and it manifests itself in the energy and the soul of the animal. Once it manifests itself in the soul and the energy of the animal, you look at the animal, you see the animal is alive, doesn't point any source. The animal is a self-sufficient being. I don't, God? What God? Who's even mentioned God? Who even talks about God? Who even thinks about God? I see the cow, I see the bull, I see the sheep, I see the goat standing on its own two feet. It's, it exists. It's here. It has a life. I sense its life. I sense its, its energy. But it doesn't point its finger to God seems self-sufficient. I have my own life. I'm alive. And I can be on my own. The reality is, the truth is, we can't be in our own for a second without Hashem. 
we're nothing. Hashem is constantly creating us and sustaining us, but we don't sense it, and we don't feel it. We don't even know that. So that's what he calls klipa. That's a shell. It's a cover-up. It's a con. And that's a disconnect, and it's a lie, and it's, a, it's not a truth. It's not reality. It's a distortion. It's a distorted reality. We're getting a cockeyed view of reality, a distorted lens. We're looking at the reality of this world with a very distorted lens. We're not seeing the emmas, not seeing the truth. But when you take this animal and you do a mitzvah with this animal, you're offering it as a sacrifice in the altar, you're elevating the animal to its godly source, to its spiritual source. Now you see a divine connection. When the animal is burnt in the altar and the, the fire goes up, it's because the whole, the animal and the life of the animal, the soul of the animal, the energy of the animal is elevated back to its source. Now suddenly I see a divine connection. So it's going back to its root and its source. And that's why it's so powerful. That's why sacrifices are very powerful. It's not just a ritual, symbolic, as powerful as that may be, as Nachmanides explains. But it's something very real happens. You're taking the life of the animal, which is ultimately an, a reflection of its root and source of the chariots, of the angels, of the spiritual life. But you look at the animal, I don't see its source. <laughs> I don't see an angel. <laughs> I see an animal. An animal that its whole life is about uh, sustaining itself and self-preservation and about finding its next meal and surviving and that's the beginning and middle and end of all that's a klipa it's a shell a distortion but now I'm taking this animal I'm bringing it into the temple and I'm offering it on the altar as a sacrifice it's a mitzvah the animal's elevated that's why the sacrifices you have to elevate through fire you have to burn and the fire goes up which is a symptom of what's really going on. You're elevating the animal back to its root, back to its divine source, its spiritual source. And that elevation is a very powerful, a powerful event, which evokes a response, like anything in the, spirit, in the, in, in the universe. It's a two-way street. God is interactive. So whatever, when we elevate, it draws down the response. And, the, and then, in a moment, we're going to read about the response to the sacrifice. The former level of divinity is the source of the souls of all animals. The latter is the source of the souls of all birds, these being the two categories of creatures from which offerings are brought. The other two categories, the face of the lion and the face of man, are alluded to in the closing phrase, and so on. Offerings thus constitute an elevation and an arousal from below from a willing recipient at the level of divinity, here called the four animals of the chariot, which is the source of all things within the finite world and which hence has a connection with it. So I am revealing its source. Within this animal, I am reconnecting it and revealing its root and its source, which is divine and spiritual. So that's a very powerful moment. When you reconnect, you th- something that appears to have no connection, complete, something that appears to be disconnected, and yet you reveal the truth that it is 
connected. And it's just a manifestation of the spiritual energy and life. As a result, reciprocating this arousal, the Mayan Dukhrin, the male waters from the benefactor above, are elicited and descended from the level of divinity called Ezekiel, the man upon the throne, who is also referred to as Malka, king, and Zeir Anpin, the bracket of six masculine attributes, preceding the recipient or feminine Sifra of Malkut. The resulting illumination flows down to the world and becomes vested and integrated within it. Hence, as mentioned above, offerings are, are termed food for the altar, and they draw down a level of divine light which can be spiritually digested. Achila, it's called the food, achila, it's like the eating, act of eating. When a person eats, you strengthen the soul-body connection. If you don't eat, that soul-body connection grows weaker. You feel weak. You have no energy, you have no strength. You have a soul and you have a body, but they become distant. They become separated, apart from each other. When you eat, you're nourishing, the blood is nourished, you're alive, you're robust, you're vibrant. So the body-soul connection becomes clear and you, you feel the strength of the soul. The body feels healthy and strong. So too, when a, we offer sacrifices, it strengthens the body-soul connection. God is the soul of the world. So when, we are, when there are sacrifices, the body is robust. We feel the power of our soul. We feel the energy. We feel the strength. We feel the, the interplay, the connection. And the connection is clear. So when Jews are bringing sacrifices in the temple, godliness is palpable. It's felt. You feel the surge of energy. You feel the surge of godliness. You sense godliness. You feel that connection. Lahakariv, to bring closer. The sacrifice brings closer, brings the body-soul connection closer. That's what eating does when you eat. It strengthens, it brings closer the body and the soul. When you don't eat, it grows dim and weak. There's no energy, there's no strength. And they grow distant. So the, so godliness becomes concealed we don't feel we don't sense we don't feel so this is the response that we evoke through the sacrifices by us offering the sacrifice Hashem responds and he grows closer to us and he reveals himself and he draws closer and you can sense that energy becomes palpable that divine godly energy within us comes alive for us comes very clear so it's a two-way street. God is interactive. We venture something, Hashem responds. So this is true of a sacrifice. As for the burning of the red pepper, however, it is on the account of throwing in of the cedar wood and the chatzah and so on, the function of both of which is uh, drawing down sanctity from above. And moreover, the placing of burning of the water into ashes. That Mishnah, this process is called sanctification, the purity of waters. This relates not only the Malachitia Kodesh, Elyon, the supreme sanctity, refers to Talda de Bodulka, the dew of Bolodim, the towards description of the mana. 
Unlike the heavens beneficiation that are termed rain for results from an arousal from below, as it is written, and a vapor rose from the ground and water. The above described dew is a spontaneous arousal from above that transcends dependence on any antecedent arousal from below. After they slaughtered it, they burned the red heifer and they threw in the um, the cedar her the cedar wood and the grass, a type of grass, the hyssop, a type of grass. And then they would take the ashes and mix it with living water, which is wellspring water. And they would take from this water and ashes and they would sprinkle it on the person who was impure, contaminated, and on uh, the third day and the seventh day, and then he became pure again. So this represent this is represented by this is called Kiddush, sanctification. Sanctification refers to the highest level, which is represented by the dew, the difference between rain and dew. What's the difference? Just like physically, rain comes from the evaporation from below. The evaporation goes up, and then the clouds absorb it, and then it rains. So the rain is a response from an arousal that comes from below. Then you have dew. Dew is spontaneous. Dew comes every night you have dew. Drought, no drought. There's no drought when it comes to do. It doesn't come from below. It comes from heaven. There's always moistness in the morning. You'll always find do. And it never ceases, never stops. All seasons. It doesn't depend on anything. It doesn't depend on any... So this is the exact opposite what he described earlier. These sacrifices, the usual sacrifices, the regular sacrifices, is a response that comes from our arousal from below. But the do is something that comes, the do is something that comes directly from, from above. Independent, nothing to do with us. We don't have to do anything, we don't have to prepare. It just comes, it's a heavenly gift just comes from Hashem. Whether we earn it, we deserve it. When it comes to rain, the Torah says, if you deserve it, you'll have rain. If you act morally, you'll have rain. And if not, you won't. It all depends on us. Do, however, is a gift that comes from Hashem. It's a grace. A grace from Hashem. You deserve, you don't deserve. It has nothing to do with us. It trans- it's beyond us. It's just a gift that Hashem gives. Like the sun shines. Every morning the sun shines. We had a bad day, we had a good day. (laughs) Hashem doesn't grow tired. Every morning it's a brand new day, the sun is shining. There's terrible things happening. It's a good day, it's a bad day. This is grace from Hashem. Hashem continues to have mercy on us, to give us, sustain us, create us deserve, don't deserve, we earned it, we didn't earn it. But this is 
So this is what he calls Kodesh Elyon. It comes, it's holiness, sanctity. It comes from the highest level where our actions don't affect Hashem's desire and Hashem's this decision. You know, it's not limited to our behavior. It doesn't have to fit Fit, uh, fit us exactly whether we're worthy of receiving it, not worthy of receiving it. Hashem is just giving. Hashem is being Himself. And He's just giving. You think it matters to the sun if it's shining in a palace? Or if it's shining in a garbage dump? The sun is being itself. <laughs> the sun is shining. The light is there. You're worthy. You're not worthy. You're ready to receive. You're not ready to receive I'm just being myself. I am here. It's Hashem's grace. And so that's represented by Kodesh. That's why the, uh, the red heifer is called Kiddush Mechatas, to sanctify, sanctification of the purifying waters. And that's what he refers to as the dew. The dew of the manna. The manna, that's why the manna was called Dew. It came down like dew in the morning. They found it in the morning like dew. Because again, the manna came. It was an arousal from above. They didn't have to work for it. It's not like bread from, bread from earth. Bread from earth, you have to work very hard. To get a piece of bread, to get a loaf of bread, you have to go through 11 steps. From uh, plowing to sowing the gathering and then threshing and then winnowing and then separating and then, and then grinding and then sifting and then, then kneading and then baking. Eleven steps. Don't just get a piece of bread. A lot of work involved. But the bread that came from heaven, the manna, there was no work. It just came. You didn't have to do anything. It was there. Ready. Perfect ready to go. It was heavenly bread. Everything ultimately comes from heaven. But the bread, even when it came down to this world, it remained heavenly bread. It was otherworldly. It was a divine, godly bread. It was a godly type of food. So much so that there was no waste. That's why the Jewish people complain. This week's parsha, we're eating this bread. You know, they complained about the manna. But they, uh, you know, the bread, they said it's, it's, they called it lechem hakloikem, the bread that's ruining us, because no one ever went to the bathroom, because the bread was so pure, <laughs> there was no waste, it was divine bread, it was divine, heavenly food, even in its physical form, it remained heavenly food, it was a divine manifestation, it was, there was nothing worldly about it, and therefore it cleaned your system, there was absolutely no waste Every, it was 100% nutritious, perfect calories, everything you needed. Nobody, nobody got overweight from manna. Everyone was perfectly healthy and wholesome. So it was grace from above. It was godly. It was divine. It wasn't measured according to, to us. It wasn't if it fit us, it didn't fit us. Hashem was shining. Hashem was being Himself. Hashem showing us His grace. It has nothing to do with us. Hashem was expressing himself. This is what he calls Kodesh HaElyon, the highest level of holiness. As stated in the sacred Zohar, 
ale kdyby ucha, takže začne vysvětlit Akma, a nem Mocha Sima of Arach, Apin. i.e. this is a level of Hachma within Keter, which entirely transcends the world. Holiness is the level of Chachm. Ilah, the divine level of wisdom. You know, wisdom within us is the first level of consciousness. The creative spark, the window to the soul. The so we are created in the image of God. So too, the ten spherot begins with God's, so to speak, consciousness and personality and character begins with Chachma, Ilah, the divine, supernal wisdom. But then, he says, there's even a higher level. And that is the wisdom of Arich Ampin, which is from Keter. In other words, this is like God's subconscious. Just like we have within us, we know that, we, that our whole conscious self, which begins with the creativity and the creative mind, is really just a, a speck, uh, the tip of the tip of the iceberg. How do we know this? Because we all have the Eureka moment. Something just pops into our head from nowhere, seemingly nowhere. Of course, there's no such thing. It didn't come from, it didn't come from the ear. It came from within us. There's a place within us that we are clueless. We have no idea what's going on. And you puzzle over something and you're troubled and you rack your brain and you can't sleep and you can't eat and you're tortured and you're intense and you're trying to figure something out and you're walking along the beach or you're in the shower or something pops into your head. The light bulb goes off and wow, this creative, brilliant idea resolves the issue. I see the light at the end of the tunnel. Where did this come from again? I have no idea just popped into my head. But of course it came from within you. It came from within you, a part within you that you're completely oblivious to. A primary part of you. Our whole consciousness is just a tiny little uh, tip of the tip of the tip of the iceberg. There's a whole subconscious that we have. We're completely clueless. Just like the human body. The human body runs 99.9.9% of the human body runs unselfconscious. We're made up of 100 trillion cells and all of that just happens to work without our knowledge, without our control. And we're completely oblivious to how the human body works. Millions of things are happening simultaneously. We are, we're it's so beyond our comprehension. So there's a whole reality within us that we're completely oblivious to. And our conscious level is just a trickle, a drop. A trickle from our subconscious into our conscious. It's like taking the ocean and reducing it to a, uh, to a little trickle in, in your faucet. Trying to take the ocean and reducing it to your faucet, a drop in the faucet. So our whole conscious world, our whole reality, which is our conscious minds, words, ideas, concepts, is just a trickle in comparison to the subconscious. So our conscious wisdom, even the creative flash, the creativity, which is a window to the soul and an openness to receive something new, a transmission, an I am from our subconscious, our conscious, just tells us that there's a whole reality within us. So within our subconscious, there's a wisdom. But that level of wisdom is what he calls 
It's like a closed mind. It's closed to us. It's complete, we're completely oblivious to it. But that is the source of wisdom, of our conscious wisdom. There's a level of wisdom that's so deep and so profound and so beyond our conscious wisdom. And the truly, truly creative person, the true geniuses, were able to tap into and access that level of wisdom. Those who created real breakthroughs and profound insights that really moved the needle and moved the world and moved society forward and took a leap forward, it didn't come from our conscious self. It came from our subconscious self, from a much deeper breakthrough, revolutionary, completely outside-the-box type of thinking that in a million years you would never figure it out. You know, throughout history, there's always been those leaps and bounds where you know, those creative geniuses just took the world with them and just took them to the next level and figured things out. That even if you studied it for a million years, you would never figure it out. Where does that come from? Where does that wisdom come from? That's a wisdom that's so deep and so profound. It, it comes from the subconscious. It's, it's, it's what he calls it. It's beyond even creativity. Creativity alone is very impressive and <laughs> very powerful. But here we're talking about a, a much higher, deeper dimension of creativity, the root and source of our conscious creativity, which is a call, he calls here the closed mind. Not someone who's closed-minded, but I mean the mind that's close to us because we, don't, we can't access it, which is rooted in the, in the, in the keter, in the arachanpin, which is the subconscious. So we are created in the image of God, so too within God there is that level of wisdom, of the root and source of the divine, supernal wisdom. And that's the level. That's where the mana came from. That's the root of holiness, transcendent. On this level of Chachma and Moka Setama, it is said that in many places in the sacred Zohar, that through Chachma they are redefined and rectified. Refined and rectified, right. right. The Zohar says our purpose in life is to fix this world and to mend this world. But we mend the world through wisdom, through Torah which is through wisdom. This is an expression that the Zohar uses many times. With wisdom, you're able to refine and rectify. You know, we are defined by the world. So how do you, re- how do you fix the world if you are the world? You know, a prisoner can't release himself from prison. If you're inside the box, you can't release yourself. You need to be totally outside the box in order to release from prison. That's why the Jewish people we're tasked with the mission of rectifying the world because we're totally out of the box. We're the outsiders. We're completely not part of this world. When we become part of the world and we're part of the problem, how can you do tikkun olam when you are the olam? You are the problem. But because we have a perspective, an outsider's perspective, that's so outside the box, that challenges the whole underlying assumptions of existence itself, of everything, that we take for granted. Because we look at this world with the eyes of the Torah. The Torah is the divine wisdom. 
And not only the supernal wisdom, but even much deeper than that, the level of Chachmas like God's subconscious wisdom, so to speak. And from that point of view, this world simply doesn't exist. So it's only when, when you have that vantage point where the world simply doesn't even exist, then you're able to make a real change. You're able to move the needle. You're able to really make, make, uh, make a dent. Otherwise, you become, you become part of the world. Otherwise, you are impressed by the world. If you're impressed by the world, the world defines you. How can you redefine the world? The only way you can totally redefine the world and transform this world into a Torah world, into a godly world, into a holy world, into a good world, into a pure world, when the world is the antithesis of holiness and godliness and goodness and wholesomeness, in order to totally redefine the world, you have to be totally beyond and totally outside, outside of the box. So if the world has any sway in you, if you're impressed by the world, and you feel defined and limited by the world, how, how are you going to change it? It's impossible. It's only because the world has no effect on us, because we're so beyond. Therefore, we can totally, it's like putting in our hands, we can totally change and, and transform the world. So too, within wisdom itself, you have, within, within the intellect itself, you have logic, but logic is limited to its, it needs, its neat boxes, and it's defined, and it's limited. So you can't really go outside the box. But the level of wisdom is so transcendent, is so beyond the level of, of logic that you're literally able to redefine and come up with breakthroughs and totally brand new way of looking at things and, th and thinking of things. You know, for example, the world of, uh, of intellect, the sense of touch means nothing, right? No, no one will say, I, I, I grabbed the concept with my beer hand. I was able to grab the concept with my beer hand. <coughs> or the concept was so deep, I couldn't grab it with my hands. There's no relationship, there's no connection between the world of touch and the world of ideas. There's no connection. So it doesn't add anything and it doesn't take away. It means nothing. So too, within intellect itself, to the level of wisdom, especially the wisdom that comes from the subconscious, Logic, per se, doesn't really matter. It doesn't really make any difference. You know, the sign of Chachma, the sign of wisdom, the sign of, is truth. If something moves you, if something stirs inside of you, if something shifts inside, then it's real. And if it's not, if it leaves you cold and indifferent, it sounds very logical, but it, it's just the concept, an idea that leaves me cold and indifferent. It's not truth. It may be very logical. Two plus two is true. Two plus two is four is, tr is true. But it's not emes. 
doesn't move me, doesn't inspire me, so what? Who cares? It's irrelevant. Emes, something that's real. How do I know it's real? If it touches the totality of my being, if it, if it touches every part of me. It's not just an abstract idea that's irrelevant to my life, but it's something that evokes a response, that makes me jump up, that makes me move and shift and change, and an idea that moves me forward. So to the level of Chachman, especially the subconscious level of Chachman, of wisdom, just logic, it, it doesn't impress Chachman. It doesn't mean anything. In that realm, it doesn't mean anything. It's, a, it's, like, it's like a sense of touch in relationship to ideas and concepts. All the logic in the world is very interesting, very nice, but, but it's not real. Unless it's real, unless you really get to the core and the essence of the matter, to the soul of the matter, to the truth of the matter, that really encompasses everything. It's all encompassing and it shifts you, and it moves you, and it inspires you, and changes you. It's an idea, but it's flat. It means nothing. So you're not impressed. You can be brilliant, but to the real wise person, he's not impressed with brilliance. Okay, so you're brilliant, so what? It doesn't mean anything. It's irrelevant. It's superficial. It's external. It's not real. If it's real, if it's a level of Chachma, it's going to transform you. It's going to change you. It's relevant to your life. It's, it's personal. It's deep. It's all-encompassing. It takes everything into account. It's, you, know, you can study it for a thousand years. You'll never come to this realization, this conclusion. And once you do realize it, it just, you just leap forward and you, just, uh, you jump up and it changes you and affects you. So it's only with a level of Chachma that you can really change and change the world around you. So how does a Jew clarify this world and mend this world and really make a dent in this world and make a dent in ourselves and our human nature and make a dent in the world around us? It's only with the power of Chachma because we have the divine wisdom. We have the Torah, which is the divine wisdom. Torah is truth. Torah is not truth. Torah is emes. Torah is all-encompassing. Torah gets to the core and essence of everything. It's all-encompassing, and, it, and it, it's not just limited to one logical idea and one aspect. A logical idea is one aspect. It's one limited, neat box. But this is all-encompassing, and it's much deeper, much more profound, and it really opens everything up and changes everything. So the ability, that's what he's saying, the ability to change this world, to make a dent in this world, comes from the deepest place, from holiness, from the most exalted, from the deepest, the most profound. And it's only with the power of Chachma, with the power of the Torah, that we have the ability to refine and to rectify this world. And then, when by means of the sanctification of the purifying waters, divine light is drawn down from the devil. Darkness is, in, is converted to light. That is, too, the world of Tikkun, um, which becomes redefined and rectified by means of the Moha Yamaka of Arahapin. 
i.e. the world of Kizaran is refined and rectified from the world of Toha and the breaking of the vessels whose sparks fell into the worlds of Beria, Yetzira, and Asiya, and so on. As is known, the spiritual task of the Jew is to extract, refine, and elevate these sparks. This is why the red heifer purifies one from defilement contracted by contact with a corpse. And even though this corpse is the ultimate degree of impurity and far from lower than Nova, for the sanctification of the purifying waters is drawn down from the supreme Hakma and the Mocha Sedema of Arif Anpin, an illumination that transcends the world so utterly that it is able to transform the world's darkness into light. So this ability to transform darkness to light, from one opposite to the other, to its opposite, from one extreme to the other extreme. Total transformation. Total transformation could only come from the level of Chachma. Because it's so transcendent and it's so beyond and it's so above, not only our whole world, our whole frame of reference, that it's able to completely change and transform this world from impurity to purity from defilement the ultimate impurity defilement coming in contact with a corpse which is the grandfather of all impurities and through the red heifer through this water that is drawn down this water which represents the holiness holy water which represents the level of chachma we have the ability to completely change and transform negative to positive, bitterness to sweetness, darkness to light, impurity to purity, even death to, death to light. How could you totally transform? They're opposites. How do you get from A to B? How do you get from one to the next? They're exact opposites. Because, yes, in our frame of reference, they're opposites. That's how we define it. Everything in this world is defined by its opposite. Everything is relative. If there's no up, there's no down. If there's no right, there's no left. If there's no life, if there's no death, there's no life. If there's no sorrow, there's no joy. That's the dual world that we live in. Everything is, is opposites, is defined by its opposite. You can't have one without the other. That is our logical system. That's the world that we live in. It's called Seder Rishtalshalus. That's the world that God created. That's the world that we live in. So how do you change this world? You're stuck. You're limited. And even if you draw down a godly light, like you said earlier, but through sacrifices you draw down a godly light. Fine. So you're drawing down into our limited world, you're drawing down an unlimited light, a godly divine light, which is unlimited. Everything in our world is limited. You're drawing down something godly, something unlimited. But nevertheless, we're still stuck in the frame, framework that we work in. So you can't change one extreme to the other extreme. You can't mix it. It's one or the other. One defines the other. So how are you able to totally transform? 
It's only when you reach God's perspective. Chachma is God's perspective. Not limited to our frame of reference. God is one. God is absolute. God is not infinite. God is undefined. There are no definitions. God is not this or that. God is one. And therefore, from God's point of view, from the Torah, looking at reality from the inside out, from God's point of view, Hashem is like opening the curtain and allowing us to peek in and to see this world from His point of view. There is no up and there is no down and there is no heaven and there is no earth and there is no duality and there is no body and there is no soul and there is no right and there is no left. There's only one. Hashem Echad. And therefore you can have joy without sorrow. You can have life without death. You can have good without evil. You don't need opposites to define it. Just like God himself doesn't need anything to define himself. God is. God is an absolute reality. So when you're drawing down God's point of view, like the manna that comes from heaven, the dew that comes from heaven, the wisdom, especially the wisdom of God, rooted in God's subconscious, the innermost wisdom, which gets to the core and essence of truth, of reality, then opposites become one. You know, it's fascinating. The modern physicists, the deeper we go into, into reality, what do we discover? Quantum mechanics. The paradoxical nature of reality. It's particles, it's waves simultaneously. It makes no sense. It's, 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 it's a contradiction in terms. Squaring the circle. But when you get down to the essence of reality, it's paradoxical. That's a sign of truth, that it's real. Because it's godly. There is no opposite. You completely go beyond the whole, not only infinite, you go beyond the whole definition, the whole frame of reference. And suddenly you reconcile opposites and it all comes together and it all becomes one. And it's, it's so powerful. It stirs you, it shifts you, it changes you. It, you're completely changed and transformed. So when you reveal that truth and that depth and that essence, all bets are off. You can reach into the lowest, the coarsest, the crassest, the darkest, and you can totally transform it, completely change it and transform it. Darkness to light. Negative to positive, bitterness to sweetness, sin into mitzvah. You know, we may have all experienced some areas in our life that we're stuck and uh, we're struggling with and we're trying to figure it out logically and trying to understand it. And after all the explanations and everything that we read and everything, we're still stuck. We can't move forward. And then suddenly, you don't even know where it comes from. Suddenly something hits you. An insight. And and you just like jump up because it's so real, it's so true, it just resonates. You've been struggling for this weeks, months, years. You just don't understand and 
everything you tried is going nowhere and you're just going in circles and you're stuck in, in the neutral, you're going in reverse. And all of a sudden, it's not just intellectual insight. It's an insight that with like almost every fiber of your being, every bone in your body and your gut, it's not just in your head, it's like in your physically, you feel it physically. You just like physically jump up. So, yes, that's it. And once you have that insight and that realization, which expresses itself not just intellectually, but also physically, suddenly you feel clear. You can move forward. Nothing changed externally, but everything changed. Everything from the in, from within, everything is completely changed and transformed inside of you. You're no longer stuck. That negative place now suddenly is full of energy and full of life, and I can, you feel you can move forward. I'm, I'm not paralyzing anyone, I'm not stuck anymore. Something shifted inside, and it, 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 it's, it involved maybe thousands and millions of details, but it all comes together and just, this is a deep, deep level of wisdom. That's, a, that's why gut knowledge, gut knowledge is very powerful, because gut knowledge, now they know gut, a lot of wisdom in the gut. But that's a wisdom that comes almost from your subconscious. It's a wisdom that's so deep-rooted that takes into account everything you know and everything you ever knew. And it's so complex and so beyond. You can never figure it out in a million years. It, it, it's, it's like a subconscious level of knowledge. It's not just intellectual knowledge. It's, it's all-encompassing. And it takes you by surprise. And it's like a revelation. And it's stunning. And it's... It, 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 you know, you feel like a, a, a weight lifted off your chest and you feel, it's a tremendously good feeling. It's a very powerful experience. I'm sure everyone had it at least once in your life. And so this is a type of wisdom that he's talking about here, a gut type of wisdom. It's not only infinite, it's undefined. It, it, it's something that brings together the right brain and the left brain and your logical brain and your analytical brain and your creative brain and your emotions and your physical. It all comes together so beautifully and it just, just like it all connects and, and you hit home and it's so real. It's an insight that really changes your life. So he says to change this world and to change our lives with your superficial logic is not going to change your world we need any more proof? Look at all the bastions of intellectualism today. Which is a breeding ground, a hotbed of anti-Semitism, <laughs> almost universally across, across the board. The foolishness in the... Uh, Germany was the seat of university. Look, look, look where, that, where that led them to. Intellect is very superficial. It doesn't make you moral, it doesn't change you, and it doesn't refine you, it doesn't elevate you, and doesn't fi fix you. On the contrary, you can twist in your twisted mind, you become so twisted, you rationalize, you can rationalize Hitler, and rationalize Ar uh, uh, Muslim terrorism, and fundamentalism, and extremism. In your twisted mind. We're talking about a level of knowledge, of wisdom, of wisdom, chachma. This is a wisdom that illuminates. This is a wisdom that changes you, that elevates you, that transforms you, that inspires you, that, that's wholesome, that's real, that's so real. It's so emes. 
because it affects your behavior. It's, you can't compartmentalize it. It's, it. It affects you physically and emotionally and psychologically and logically. Every part of you. This is such a deep level of knowing that completely transforms you. And even those areas in your life that you felt stuck, and even those negative areas in your life, suddenly open up and blossom. And now they become positive. You know, you feel something is holding you back. You feel a, a baggage. You feel a, a neg- something negative in your past or something that's just holding you back and it's just draining you of your energy. But once you have this level of wisdom and this level of revelation and this level of grace stirring and stirring and revealing itself inside of you, all those areas, everything opens up. And you feel youthful again and a zest for life and you can go forward and you can change. And those areas, maybe you've been stuck for decades and suddenly you can move forward and you can change, you can grow. So the only way to achieve a change in this world, in this setting that we live in, in this dark, coarse, crass, materialistic world that we live in, it's only through the highest level, the holiest level, the highest level, the deepest level, which is Torah. And that could achieve a complete transformation, genuine change, a revolution. And this is the do, and this is the mana, and this is the mechatas, this is the uh, red heifer. This is the water of the red heifer. So now that he explained the red heifer, then next week we'll continue, we'll go and explain the connection between the passing of the tzaddik and the red heifer. But any questions, comments, thoughts? You don't have to agree with anything that was said. I can't disagree until we understand it. (laughs) (laughs) Until until you think you understand it. (laughs) <laughs> you know, the previous Lubavitcher every once Fabreng, and he said, he was describing the difference between two, two different types of uh, Jews, two different types of even Hasidim. Thursday night, you got to prepare for Shabbos, so one Jew sits Thursday night, and he takes out a Talmud, and he learns half of the night Talmud, and he takes out a code of Jewish law, and learns half of the night. He feels great. He spends the whole night learning Torah. And then the morning before davening, he learns a little Hasidus, and he's davening, and, and uh, he goes into Shabbos, he goes to the <coughs> mikveh, he feels like a king, he's on top of the world. He's prepared, royally prepared at every level, spiritually and physically. He even has time to taste from the food of Shabbos before Shabbos. He's, he's flying out. Then you have a chassid. So Thursday night, he's preparing for Shabbos. So he spends a whole night trying to understand the difference between these two levels of chachma that we just discussed. The chachma of supernal wisdom. And the Chachma of Zerampin, of Keter, which he calls Moichastima, the closed, it's, so, it's closed that we can't access it. And he's breaking his head and he's trying to understand it. He's trying to figure out, he says, I don't understand. Because the truth is that the supernal wisdom is also closed to us. We have a concept of what supernal wisdom is, the divine wisdom, the world of emanation. So what's the difference between this and the other? The supernal wisdom is infinite and we have no clue what that is. What makes Mechastima more closed and more inaccessible than this part of wisdom? And the whole night is going back and forth, and he comes to the realization, you know, 
I don't understand. <laughs> I don't understand anything. <laughs> this whole thing makes no sense to me. I don't know the difference between Chachmahila uh, and Mechastima. It's all words. It's words. I mean, I'm just saying words, but I don't know what it means. It doesn't mean anything. I can't relate to it. I, can't, I don't understand it. I can't absorb it. Anyway, it comes time to daven the whole night. He wasted a whole night. He, he didn't accomplish anything. didn't get anywhere. comes to daven. Okay, so to think about what he studied Thursday night, the whole night, you can't think about it because he doesn't understand. <laughs> Before you daven, you have to think. Hasidim used to think. So Hasidus. Not just learn Hasidus, they took the time to think about it and try to internalize it. Okay, so let me think about something that I know already, something that I learned. He's trying, he's trying, he's trying this, he's trying the other. It's not going. It's not a good day. Whatever he tries... <laughs> It's not inspiring him, he's unmoved, it doesn't reach him, it doesn't connect. Anyway, hours go by, and he realizes, oh, it's Friday, it's late, it's almost Shabbos, I better get that to daven. And he barely davens with a simple meaning, like a simple Jew, he has to rush through the davening. He doesn't have time to prepare for Shabbos. You can imagine he comes to shul, he's so broken, <laughs> he accomplished nothing, he wasted Thursday night, he wasted Friday, he did nothing, he accomplished nothing. He's so brokenhearted. Previous Rebbe said, so, so after 120 years, this Jew goes straight to the Garden of Eden. Look, look what he accomplished. He learned, and he studied, and he learned Chayshin Mishpat, and he learned Tur, and he learned Gemara, and he even learned Hasidus, and he's, he's perfect. And this Hasid comes to heaven brokenhearted. Did you learn anything? I wouldn't call it learning. I didn't understand a word. I spent all night trying, but it I didn't, didn't make sense to me. And did you daven? At the end of the day, I barely daven like a simple Jew. Just with this. I didn't even have time for the simple me. Straight to hell. <laughs> said that his hell is better <laughs> than this other person's. Uh, you know. So uh, knowing that we don't know and not knowing is a good place. <laughs> is a good place to be. Before you learn Hasidus, you think you know everything. You learn, you start learning Hasidus, and suddenly we realize, I don't know. It's a wonderful place to be. I don't know. It's the beginning of all wisdom. I'm <laughs> this class is part of the Lessons in Tanya project. More classes available at LessonsInTanya.com.